This talk is supported by SmallPDF, the successful Swiss scale-up making PDF easy for over a billion people around the world since 2013. You may remember them from a previous podcast we hosted with their CEO, Dennis Just. Their mission is to make PDFs and life easy for people across the world, a mission made possible with their 90-plus amazing employees across Zurich, Belgrade and Barcelona. If you want to join this fast-growing Swiss scale-up, visit smallpdf.com forward slash Swisspreneur and apply. As the planet started to heat up and we started to see these natural disasters like the last five years, right? We had the flooding in Germany. We had the the Texas freeze in the U.S. Um, You had these fires in Australia and just very extreme weather events that, that take lives and destroy wildlife ecosystems. Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. Rob, a very well welcome to the Swisspreneur Show. It's a pleasure and an honor to have you here today. Well, thank you for having me, Sylvan. Pleasure to meet you and thanks for having uh, me on the podcast. You're the co-founder and CEO at Energy Vault, a global energy storage company based in Ticino and also publicly listed at the New York Stock Exchange. I mean, that's a fantastic story to talk about. I'm really excited to cover that today. Before we jump in, I want to start with your personal background. You actually nowadays work in renewable energy, but your first job back in the 90s was at BP. That's quite a transition, right? Yeah, I started with a company called Amoco that then merged with BP. So they were both two very large integrated oil companies. Uh, And uh, very interesting now coming full circle back to renewable energy. You know, back then, Sylvan, they used to say that there was um, no problem that $20 a barrel couldn't solve. And of course, (laughs) now we live in a completely different world. Um, But it was an interesting transition to renewable where I... um, after the merger with Amico and BP, I wanted to get into technology because I was fascinated at that time in the late 90s, mm-hmm. what was happening with the internet, this thing called the internet. Right. And uh, so I actually shifted after graduate school and went into telecommunications with Bell Labs and Lucent Technologies. And that was very interesting to see the power of software mm-hmm. and how software could transform uh, businesses, transform how we communicate. Um, transform business models. Uh, and that was a very important part of my career because it, it had me understand um, that software, when combined with different businesses, whether in hardware or uh, in any things that now became virtual, like what happened with the virtualization now, in particular the last 10 years, mm-hmm. uh, how important that was. And that did lead me um, to meet Bill Gross from Idea Lab, and of course, led me back into renewables with is almost like a synthesis of um, software and um, and energy together and now in renewable energy. And yeah, you worked for many Fortune 100 companies. So you've seen the biggest companies of the world. So I wonder what then drew you into entrepreneurship to actually start a company yourself? Where does that entrepreneurial drive and motivation come from? Well, I guess it's been in me from when I was very young. I, I grew up working in a family business where, as you know, when you're in a family business, yeah. you have to do everything. So... Uh, you know, you're dealing with the public on the one side, you're supporting a manufacturer on the other, you're delivering things even. So I, growing up in this way, I, I learned how to, um, uh, to build, to multitask, but also mm-hmm. to manage and work with people. And I think as I 
worked in the corporate world in larger companies. It was a fantastic experience uh, that allowed me to really understand process and the need for infrastructure, mm -hmm. um, how to work across teams, because always in big yeah. corporations, it's not just about you. You're relying on uh, on people and you have to, um, I think, work together to achieve goals. So these things were, I think, very important for my development as a, both, I think, as a, um, in capabilities as a manager, but also in understanding how to build for growth and, and do things, let's say, with process that has to be repeatable. Uh, you know, as a public company, it's uh, every quarter <laughs> you have to deliver as we are now. So I would say this, that experience was very important, but at the same time, I always was very um, uh, strong in building teams and leading people and achieving things in larger companies. Um, and felt like I could do a lot more, w you know, without some of the constraints uh, sure. of working in a large organization to even build things from from scratch uh, yeah. and and grow them in the proper way. So this, I, you know, you learn about yourself through your career mm -hmm. as you develop, and and then you sort of gravitate uh, toward those areas, and that's what led me first into private equity, managing companies, mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, starting companies on my own and building them. But in that regard, you would say it was the right and an important step to shape your career to work for larger companies first before starting your own company. Or would you change that in retrospect? Yeah, no, I think that experience was important. And it also got me uh, back when being global was unique back, uh, you know, in the 90s and the early 2000s. So it also the larger companies allowed me to work uh, overseas and work uh, outside of maybe where I grew up and lived. So that's, for example, I spent time working in Europe, even though I was American mm -hmm. for the oil company. So I think um, that experience was important for me to develop also as a leader, as a manager, to gain experience that, of course, serves me now so well coming from the public company environment and taking a small growth company and building it, scaling it to be ready to become public and then becoming a public company. So I think uh, it's fairly unique, I think, to have your foot in both and build your experience at mm -hmm. that way. And I think has has served me and served the company well. And you've seen Europe, you said, and then in 2017, you actually even decided to move to Switzerland, mm -hmm. to Ticino specifically. Yeah. Why did you decide to do that from yeah. the U.S. to Ticino? That's quite a move. Sure. Actually, I started much earlier in Ticino. So I was working in the private equity sector and running some healthcare groups uh, that first had me come over here in late 2009 and 2010. So I actually moved my family, uh, which is not small. I have eight children, uh, all from the same woman. You have to say that these days. Sure. Yeah. So um, brought my family over here to build that business uh, for the private equity firm mm -hmm. uh, that was Berkshire. And uh, we sold that in a successful way. And as a part of that, transition, I decided to stay in Switzerland with the family and take the European part of that business that the buyer of the business didn't understand as well the European market. So yeah. I chose at that time to raise some money on my own, mm -hmm. purchase that business, build it, run it and grow it. So that's what essentially had me continue to stay in Switzerland. And I ended up selling that company to a, a private equity fund. But that's when I started in 17. I was here uh, and had met Bill Gross uh, through um, an intersection five to 10 years earlier. And that's when he shared this idea about energy storage and asked me to work with him on it. Please share a bit more about the early days of Energy Vault, how the idea emerged out of Bill Gross' idea lab. Sure. By the way, it was a, 
an amazing concept. And Bill is someone that I've always tremendously admired, respected. He has probably one of the most unique and most successful track records in building companies. So Idea Lab is is the longest running technology incubator in the U.S. and and arguably the the I think the most prominent and best performing. Uh, almost half of his companies that he started either. Uh, did an IPO or were either acquired or merged with a strategic. So that's, as you know, from the startup world yourself, that's quite a track record. And so Bill had contacted me in 2008, was the first time about being the CEO of one of his companies in the renewable and the solar and industrial heat area. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that didn't work out from a timing perspective. We stayed in touch over the years. And the big coincidence was I was living in Switzerland and he was collaborating with someone from Switzerland uh, who went to ETH, living in Ticino. Uh, and when he called me about this great new idea that he had about the concept of an energy storage, uh, he shared the CTO happened to be in Ticino. So I knew that was the right thing and the right timing because timing is so important in your, mm-hmm. I think, career and in your life. So that's what, uh, when he shared this concept of, of looking at gravity, which is proven, we know 90% of all Energy storage comes from these pumped hydroelectric dams, which, of course, are very prominent here in Switzerland. Um, But really rethinking how to scale it, making it lower cost, more efficient and sustainable. And and we developed it from there. And yeah, that was then also your third co-founder, Andrea Pedretti, that you met there. And how do you then put the idea into a, a reality? I mean, in the end, you have to build a product, right? That's one of the first biggest challenges to to overcome, especially if there's hardware involved. Yeah, it, it is the challenge. And I would say not only build the product, but you have to build it economically. Sure. Yeah. At a price that someone is willing to pay where there's a profit left over. Yeah, otherwise. So, yeah, yeah, right. Because there's a lot of things, even in this idea of using gravity that we looked at early on to use steel cylinders filled with water to mm-hmm. use um, what looked like parking garages with PVC trays where the water would traverse down. So really mirroring that concept of taking an object or a substance or any weight that would traverse down, turn a motor, generate electricity, and then be pumped back up. So the concept of the like the pumped hydroelectric dam. So I, I would say that th- that development we went through, exactly to your point on um, uh, on getting to the right concept and product, mm-hmm. probably 15 different iterations uh, before wow. we even created the company. So okay. I was working with Bill Gross and Andrea Pedretti uh, enough in advance. And then when we got to a concept that we thought um, would work and we felt like we had enough knowledge about materials and the physics around it uh, and software to automate it, mm-hmm. that we would create the company then and begin to do some feed funding. And that happened in later 2017. And we incorporated the Swiss company uh, in December of 17 and started really operationally in uh, in, in January 2018. Wow. Maybe be, before we talk about the other challenges that you also overcame along the way to going public, I want to focus more on, the, on your solution. So high-level approach, what is the current problem before Energy Vault was born with energy storage? Because many people talk about it, but to get very specific, what is the issue that you actually solve with Energy Vault? Yeah, the problem with storing electrons, so let's talk about what, what do we really say, what is energy storage? To store those electrons, uh, it's extremely difficult because um, it, it's very costly mm-hmm. to store them. Uh, you, you know, there is a, a a life that these electrons will have in storage, and it's very difficult to find technologies that not only are cost effective but also are sustainable. 
So for example, 90% of all energy storage today are these pumped hydroelectric dams, 90%. So you think about, so, wow. (laughs) So you have gravity, which, you know, it's the law. It's not really an idea. Um, And people built, you know, dams and put in motors around them. That's our energy Mm -hmm. storage. Why wasn't there something more simple? It's because it's a difficult problem to solve technically. And then Mm -hmm. there was the development from 12 years ago of lithium ion batteries that only in the last three to four years have they been really deployed, beginning to get deployed in more volume. And that's a, it's a chemical battery, it's rare earth metals, they only come from a few places. That's difficult from a supply chain perspective, right. difficult because you have to transport them, which creates greenhouse gases, mm-hmm. uh, and they degrade over time. So, right. the, the pro, so it's been very difficult, and I would say the industry uh, lacked a lot of innovation to really prioritize this problem earlier. And now, as the planet started to heat up, uh, and, and we started to see these natural disasters like the five, last five years, right? Mm-hmm. We had the flooding in Germany. We had the, the Texas freeze in the U.S. Um, you had these fires in Australia and just very extreme weather events that, that take lives and, and destroy wildlife ecosystems. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think that this is waking the world up and um, now a lot of investment and innovation in energy storage. But it is it is something that's a little late in getting solved, uh, mm-hmm. I, I think, given the, the demand and the need. And it's, I think you see that happening now, um, but we need as much storage as we can get. There's no silver bullet. So there's gonna be many technologies that some that serve better shorter duration, like today, lithium ions serving shorter right. duration. And then there's other technologies that are maybe focused more on compressed air, compressing and, and expanding things that will store and release energy. Mm-hmm. Um, gravity, so like what we've developed in the long term, in long, long duration energy storage. So I think other technologies and innovation now are coming, including new chemistries for batteries and, and new ways of solving it electrochemically. Um, so this is going to be important for us to accelerate getting renewables uh, deployed so it can become dispatchable power and replace fossil fuel. Yeah, it's, we're very thankful that you're working on that and find a solution. How exactly does your solution work? Because there's a hardware, but also a software component, as you mentioned before. Can you explain how they play together? Sure. Yeah, the, the Gravity system was our first proprietary hardware system. And uh, fundamentally, what we were able to do is take what Pumped Hydro does and has been doing for 100 years, uh, take gravity and instead of water and having to make dams and destroy wildlife ecosystems, for example, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, you were limited in where you can build pumped hydro and you have dependencies on geology and on on landscape. We, we took the concept of, of gravity and we were able to make it much lower cost and more efficient through essentially building a structure uh, instead of water, uh, which doesn't exist everywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we developed uh, these composite blocks, and I didn't say cement blocks because cement concrete isn't really sustainable. So right. we worked in the material science area with Semex uh, and developed a polymer that they had to apply for our ability to make these massive composite blocks, which is our weight, right? Mm-hmm. So instead of water, we're, we're lifting up with excess energy um, a composite block that's made from the soil only at the, from the excavation. But not only soil, we can make it uh, and use waste materials. So in a, this is an interesting circular economic aspect of what we do. We can take uh, coal ash, concrete debris, tailings from the mining process, mm-hmm. um, wind blade, decommissioned wind blade fiberglass, which is becoming a big problem. Um, so we can actually reuse waste materials in this. So we're not only storing renewable energy, 
but we're sort of greener than green in that we're also reusing waste materials that would otherwise be destined for landfills, uh, not only bad for the environment, but very expensive now to do. So, right. so the way it works is we, we move these um, and take excess energy, excess wind and solar when it's needed, although we can charge it up with any power source mm-hmm. when it's cheap. It raises the blocks at height, and then when the grid needs it, it, it will lower, and we use software to automate that whole process. And what I'll share with you, that software was fundamental not only for our gravity, but we knew that because there's no silver bullet for storage, meaning customers have different needs, different durations, and it'll be best served by different technologies. For example, not just our gravity, we developed our software platform to be able to be hardware agnostic, meaning it not only operates as an energy management platform, our our gravity system, um, but it can integrate any technology. So we just announced uh, two months ago over a gigawatt hour of deals focused on the integration of lithium, of batteries, of of lithium phosphate or lithium ion batteries um, to deliver something on shorter duration to customers. So that software component is is fundamental uh, because it allows us to really provide the best value to the customer. But that's how gravity works and how our software uh, is fundamental, not only to automate what happens in the gravity system, but generally for us to be able to help our customers deal with this problem. Right. I feel you're just getting started, you know, with the software part, there's so much more potential that you can uncover there. You mentioned degradation before for the lithium batteries. Mm. How is degradation a challenge or not a challenge for your setup with these big bricks? Actually, we don't degrade over time. So that's one of the big advantages of gravity. Uh, We obviously need height, so we do need a structure. So you aren't going to build it everywhere, like in the middle of a city where real yeah. estate's expensive and where you wouldn't build out, you know, necessarily renewable. Mm-hmm. But out where you're building out wind or solar or out where there's coal plants that are being decommissioned, where there's already the grid infrastructure, the, the inter- it's all there, right? It's already built. So you can, we could use the concrete debris from demolishing the coal plant, for example, uh, or any industrial plant make our blocks uh, mm-hmm. and build out wind, solar, or definitely our storage there. We don't have to be co-located with the w- the wind or solar. Um, but it is uh, th- this lack of degradation is one of the key points that helps us over time on what's called a levelized cost basis. Yeah. So our economics are very interesting because we have low operating expense. We don't need air conditioning like lithium ion needs air conditioning in there to air condition and keep their battery systems at a certain mm-hmm. temperature within a temperature range. Um, but that lack of de- degradation means, uh, you know, these systems can last, we say, 30 to 35 years. I mean, technically, wow. it's a structure. It, it, it could theoretically last much, much longer. Um, and, uh, and that lack of degradation means we avoid, for example, with batteries, require what's called augmentation capital, augmentation capex, meaning as the cells degrade, they have to be replaced. So right. this the customers have to factor in to how they support so you have a longer life cycle. How about the maintenance, but also the setup costs? Do you also have a competitive edge there? Actually, what's interesting about the infrastructure and setup is we do everything local. So mm-hmm. what's nice about that is uh, it puts a lot of investment back into the local communities. So whereas today, for example, in the U.S. or in Europe, if you're if you need lithium-ion batteries, you have to buy them. They come from a few places of the world, or they are manufactured in Korea, China, you know, very few places. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of that content isn't local. So what's interesting about our setup and fixed cost is a lot of that infrastructure will 
set up at a site like to do the brick manufacturing it's all local so that means we aren't doing bringing a lot of trucks in and out so that's good because the transportation sector as you know is probably one of the it's it's if not the largest one of the largest sectors for greenhouse gas emissions Mm -hmm. so um the fact that we can be local build out the infrastructure and then we do just move it to another site that's an advantage because we can get multiple uses out of that same infrastructure uh and then you know the the other the the job creation aspect about the investment back into the communities where we're building these are things that are very important and i would say just as important as economics now people are making these decisions mm-hmm. um based on uh how much of your how what's your job creation i'm getting questions how many jobs per megawatt hour of storage do we create think about that ratio sure. so it's a it's interesting, and that's led to um, a few selections for us for gravity in larger scale applications. Yeah, that's another huge advantage that you bring to the table. Yes. Who are your target customers? Is it the, the power grid companies who actually want to store the electricity or who, who buys your solution? Yeah, so by the way, three different segments, I'd say, of, of the, uh, and one of them I think very unique on the gravity side. But first, it starts with utilities that in the end own or distribute to a grid infrastructure and typically play that role distributing power, whether to commercial mm-hmm. enterprises or to, to residentials. Yeah. So I'd say, uh, and to businesses. So I'd say the utilities are one that's the customers that they, what are they doing? They're, they're shutting down over time their fossil fuel plants yeah. uh, and making this shift to renewables. Um, now that may be through purchasing power from uh, what's called, and this is another segment, independent power players or IPPs. Mm -hmm. Um, So for example, one of the largest ones in the world is NL Green Power. They're an Italian, they have an Italian utility, but they have a group that manages all their their green infrastructure. So wind, solar, and also pumped hydro. Um, So that's another segment. And we announced a few things like that also with our software integrating other technology um, for these these independent power players. There's another segment that has to do with industrial players that we've um, made announcements around, and that's um, people, for example, in the mining industry, like BHP, that's also an investor in the company, um, Korea Zinc, which also invested in the IPO, that's a lar- they're the largest producer of, of zinc, mm-hmm. silver, um, a rare metal called indium, uh, and lead in the world, for example. So they have massive operations in Australia uh, and they want to electrify their operations and be powered by renewables 80% by 2030, which is a very aggressive target. Wow. So the whole area of industrial or um, uh, mining as a segment or uh, desalination plants that can be built and run with solar during the day, but they need four mm-hmm. to six megawatt um, power, uh, mainstream power through the night. Yeah. So. Um, so though this industrial segment is interesting and most need long duration because like the mining groups want to make green hydrogen to power trucks or green ammonia for locomotives. One of the most efficient ways to make green hydrogen is to take solar combined with a long duration storage product Mm -hmm. to run electrolysis. So you buy an electrolyzer and you split hydrogen out of water. So out of the HTO, um, so it's, um, uh, so they need long duration storage. And, and then the final area that's related to this third segment is related to uh, things like solar fuels. Mm-hmm. Um, so for example, um, we've announced uh, uh, supporting a, a group called DG Fuels in their waste biomass to energy process. 
that's fueled by green hydrogen. So mm -hmm. we announced um, over two gigawatt hour in storage for them. They just announced their first offtaker agreement with Delta Airlines, who's going to buy their uh, once the facility is up and operating. We'll be buying their uh, their SAF or sustainable aviation fuel. So we're serving everything you would expect that most storage companies serve um, in utilities and independent power players, but also industrial and and solar fuel because of the need in some cases to make green hydrogen, the need um, uh, to make green ammonia, and therefore the need for long duration. Right. Wow. Yeah. That's impressive. Mm -hmm. What is your business model behind your offering, your product, basically? How do you charge for your... Yeah, I guess we have three different main models that we look at. Um, one of them, pr probably the most straightforward, is one where we'll, we'll build it, commission it, and transfer it over to the customer. Mm -hmm. There's then an ongoing maintenance, long-term service agreement with that. There's also a software license that gets paid. Yeah. So I would say that the first model... Um, is one where customers really want to own the infrastructure. And for gravity, and, and even for some of the battery things we integrate, that's I would say that's mostly the case. The second model, and we are doing this, uh, for example, with a, a system in Texas, is one where we invest in the system, we'll build it, we'll own it, and we'll sign a long-term, uh, what's called a PPA, a power purchase agreement, or we'll do a tolling where they charge on a dollar per kilowatt month. So we'll okay. own it and have a long-term, usually typically minimum 15 years wow. of, a, of a contract to discharge that power and have it available. Yeah. Um, so that's a, a second model. The third one uh, has to do with the licensing of the technology. So we mm -hmm. announced this in China, for example, a, uh, a significant um, deal where Atlas Renewable invested 50 million in our IPO and then um, uh, purchased a license to be uh, our provider in China uh, mm -hmm. for another 50 million. Um, so they paid us a license fee uh, and this was all publicly announced. So that's another model where in certain countries, uh, I think a license model uh, can be the right model where you do a first system, educate your partner, and then they deploy. And of course, China so important because it's, uh, you know, the largest producer of greenhouse gases in the world larger than the next seven countries combined, which include the United States, Japan, large countries like India, obviously there, um, and, uh, and even a lot of developed countries. So it's, a, um, it, it's important we attack there and, and provide storage to get renewables built out. China has a, um, their, what they call their 3060 program, where they're gonna be increasing greenhouse gases still through 2030, and then they say they're gonna be carbon neutral by 2060. That's that's just too long. And um, that's why we prioritized what we're doing there. And it's, you know, the, these countries have no walls. So and greenhouse gases go all over the world. So it's sure. incumbent upon all of us, just like with COVID, mm -hmm. which, which, you know, was a little challenge for the world to really try to unite and, and coordinate and solve a problem. Uh, not easy when, you know, you've got a lot of politics and, and, and prior history involved. But, but I think we're, we're going to get there with climate change, I think, for sure. But still, I mean, that's a huge challenge to tackle, right, on a global scale. Yeah. And I also wonder, like, what you just explained, you have different models of acquiring clients, you know, with your direct sales, but also with partners or with licensing agreements. Which one is the most important for you right now? Is mm -hmm. there one clear champion where you say that's the most important mm -hmm. channel of strategy for you in these days? Well, I think, like any new company and in introducing any new technology, it's important in the earlier stages, in the first years that you're deploying, that you're very hands-on. 
And that means that we're going to want to make sure that as we're implementing the technology, that it's going to work reliably, that we don't have any hiccups. Uh, And, you know, because of what we're doing on a global basis, it's even more incumbent on us, I think, to make sure we have successful deployments of the first technology. So, Mm -hmm. so the business model in terms of what's ideal, I think earlier stage, I think it's going to be important. We're a little more hands-on. And then as we evolve and develop, I think the licensing model uh, can be interesting as the technology gets quote unquote proven and, Mm -hmm. and we're out turning over systems with our software to customers, whether that be managing our proprietary gravity or managing other, other technologies like lithium. And with the potential that ECL, your technology is a huge leverage to help us get closer to reduce the CO2 emissions in the world. Do you sometimes have to make a tough call or a tough trade-off where you say, well, China will be an interesting market, which you're tackling right now, because there you have the biggest leverage, the biggest potential to improve things. But maybe somewhere else with your same time and resources, you could potentially make more money from a business perspective. Yeah. Is that sometimes a difficult challenge? Yeah, it's... Uh it's always a balance, especially when you're early stage and and when you're in those stages in, in running a company where, uh, especially as a public company, we have to be very careful, uh, I think, about what we commit to do and what's going to be reasonable given our stage. So the yeah. last 12 months, we've actually said no much more than we've said yes to customers. Why? Because already we're starting deployments on three continents between China Australia and the United States, which some with some of the biggest customers in the world, and we don't want to have a a misstep. So I think that's really important, especially on the gravity technology side. I think for the battery integration, we have a very talented team that um, came from Greensmith Energy that did over a hundred projects in twelve countries, perfect safety record. So we've got a we've got an experienced set of people there that uh, I think are going to allow us to deploy a technology now that's been deployed the last five to seven years in some higher volumes, therefore is proven, therefore uh, we'll be able to move with speed and agility and and maybe do more than we otherwise would have. Um, But otherwise for the larger gravity builds, we're going to make sure that that everything goes um, as we've committed and as planned. And that's why we built a five megawatt full commercial system here in Switzerland back um, that got completed, we started in 19, got completed a little later due to COVID in July, 2020. Uh, but having that demonstration system at scale was so important for us to attract the likes of Saudi Aramco, BHP, some of the biggest companies in the world in their sector um, as investors and that back the company and our customers or will be customers of our solutions. Yeah. So it's really important to show them not only the idea, but actually how it works in, in real life and practice, mm-hmm. I can imagine. Well, especially, uh, you know, investors are particular, especially from that are some of the leaders in the world, because that means yeah. they have very good engineering teams and are very good at diligence uh, and have process. So in rigor with that process. So not only there, but but also, uh, you know, is it becoming a public company? So even yeah. I, I think even more um, incumbent on us to ensure that we're uh, as as public investors look at companies that, mm-hmm. um, you know, we've got everything in, you know, in place and we're you know, meeting the commitment. So this, I think the technology and doing the demonstration unit was very important um, for us. It gave us the confidence to go to the next level now and build out. We, we did optimize from there. We listened to customers. We learned from building that first five megawatt system and all of that learning has been put in the new EVX platform that now we're going to be building. 
and even before you went public, I imagine you had quite a, a need for capital to finance the development, the, you know, the actual build of your power plant, so to yeah. speak. How easy was it for you to raise capital? I mean, of course, you had like Bill Gross and a strong team basically in place, but was it difficult to raise funds mm. for such an ambitious venture or was it actually easier because you also tackle goals beyond the pure business means? Yeah, I would say in the earlier phases, it was a little easier because of the nature of the of the factors that drive investment and what are those. Mm -hmm. It starts with, I think, do you have an attractive market? Um, and you know, and really being formal about how you look at what's how you segment markets and and what's attractive um, versus what's not. You segment the customers. You segment all the different competitors that play in the space. You know, are there are there good economics? You know, what are unit economics? What's achievable? So I think, um, and I learned a lot about that when I worked at Danaher, which is another was a Fortune 100 company uh, that that really um, uh, almost perfected the model to do that well. Uh, they were the best performing public equity in the world for 25 years, wow. between 19 and 20 percent return on equity. So, um, so what I'd say is, um, I, you know, I think in looking at markets, we were in a good one. And so that made it attractive for investors, uh, specifically in renewables. People know we have to go there and, and it became a little more urgent. So that made it pre-COVID, mm -hmm. made the fundraising um, where we didn't have to pick up the phone too much. Uh, we did our Series B with SoftBank, who, you know, at the time in 2019 was really the big stick, 100 billion venture fund. I mean, typically venture funds are you know, a few hundred million normally yeah. for, a, for a larger venture fund because you're making smaller investments sure. in bets. So SoftBank's model sort of changed the, uh, a little bit how venture looked at, at, at growth. Mm -hmm. um, then COVID hit, so it became very difficult to raise money then. But again, fundamentally, I think because of our technology, because of the way we designed and developed it, leveraging sort of a proven tech and adding other innovation and then what we did with software, uh, and as that evolved, I, I think even toward the end of COVID and things, we had a lot of interest, uh, a, an excellent management team. I mean, as you know, every day and ends with our people. So having a very seasoned, experienced, public company ready team, that that gave investors confidence. Uh, and, and all of us from different industries, I, you know, I, I'm sort of unique because I started in a large integrated oil, then coming back to renewable and worked in between in software and developing healthcare service business models in private equity. So so all of us bring some deep domain in what we're doing, others bring great functional, and others bring a combination of both. And I think that diversity has really enhanced our ability to perform, to execute, and to get where we are today. So I think it's a it's really a combination of those things and, mm -hmm. and that as people look to invest, that are all the, the, the factors uh, that are important. And if you look at the history, right, you basically went public five years after founding the company. That's incredibly fast. Yes. Yeah. I mean, was that always the goal for you to go public that fast? Well, definitely, I wasn't expecting an IPO in that time frame because mm -hmm. that um, that was that was pretty aggressive, and it was um, uh, you know just over just over four years. You know, just less than four and a half years that we were able to do that. Um, and what I'd say is that, you know, going public is always a, a logical evolution of a company over time. Mm -hmm. um, you don't rule out if someone puts an offer on a company through a trade sale or something. Right. But in the end, 
we just focused on executing our plan and form followed function, which is as commercial agreements began to get signed and technology was proven and we were on a development path um, and the markets were receptive to it. So that's the other thing about an IPO is, you know, right now, for example, with the interest rates where they are, it's impossible. I mean, unless you've got something really special and unique, mm -hmm. um, but in a high interest rate or a raising, uh, a, let's say a rising interest rate environment, very di difficult to do IPO. So there's that factor too. So we just happened to strike sort of, um, we were at that an interesting evolution of the company. The market was willing to pay a premium for, for growth and even pre-revenue growth mm -hmm. if it was in the right segment, if it had the right management team, if there were a set of factors there, you know, proven technology. So I think... Um, those set of factors led to us believing that it was the right time to go public. And our view hasn't changed despite all the volatility and despite, for example, um, some of the negativity that got associated with a special purpose acquisition vehicles or, or companies or SPACs. Um, so a lot of that's changed now in this, mm -hmm. in this market, but it fundamentally didn't change then the, the reasons we went public and, and the opportunity we saw and hasn't changed now. So I think that was the right decision. It's again the importance about timing, right? As you mentioned before, when it was Bill Gross and you working together, the first time the timing just didn't align. And also here, the timing was aligning, so you took the opportunity to go public. Why did you decide to go public in New York and not Switzerland, for example? Oh, it's really just uh, about you know capital efficiency and size and scale of the company. We were also based in the US then. And uh, you, you, if you look at the stock exchanges, I think um, there it would have been, uh, I think not the best thing for us to go in Switzerland because we were founded as a US company out of Idea Lab. However, we incorporated right away our Swiss entity because that's with the coincidence of Andrea Pedretti, the CTO, and me living here with my family, um, we chose to build the company here. So I think the fact that we were a US company at our founding that influences some things too. And, um, and, you know, obviously to be on the New York Stock Exchange, that's yeah. probably in the world, that's probably the most prominent uh, platform. And we, uh, we felt like that was the best fit for us. Right. So can you also walk us through the process of going public? Because some founders might think about that here in Switzerland, you know, a few years down mm -hmm. the road, but sometimes it's hard to grasp what does that actually mean? So can you give us a bit of a behind the scenes look of what sure. going public actually means the way that you did it? Yeah, the decision to go public is not a light one. And one that there are so many factors uh, and things that need to be in place first just to make the decision mm -hmm. and then to actually go public. So I, I think the, the, in, in overlaying this aspect of timing then is another factor. But I would say that you know, you need to reach a scale of the company that you believe you can predict uh, and predict reliably how things are going to perform. So if you've got lumpy contracts or lumpy sales, that's yeah. difficult. Uh, right. If you're sort of going to be more reactive to markets or you've got, you know, contracts that comes even at certain times of year of the year, which so that if there's seasonality. Mm -hmm. So you, you've got to. I think there's a first aspect of criteria of you believe you've got a business that now you can predict with some level of accuracy uh, performance by performance. I mean, operationally, you understand how deployments are going to work. You understand how um, customers are going to pay you. You understand how revenue can be recognized. 
then you get into just the infrastructure to be able to close your books formally on a quarterly basis. That's a, the whole infrastructure of IT infrastructure, financial uh, processes, um, compliance processes. I mean, we live in a, a much different world now than we did 20 years ago. Um, you know, doing business as a public company in certain parts of the world are challenging because um, of the threshold and the, um, you, you know, what, what you're held to, I think, from a compliance perspective in countries like the U.S. and doing business in, in other countries and, and what are the implications for that in terms of um, what you can and can't do and uh, what are the rules of engagement, for example, in working with governments and you get into uh, FCPA and other other, again, public company um, restrictions that, that you have to be very mindful. And it really, you know, there's personal liabilities involved as well. So I would right. say that it's, um, there's a lot you have to think about before you even, that, that you consider on just to get to the decision or the factors to become, let alone then once you make the decision and then there's a process to go public, it's a, um, you know, that's not for the faint of heart either because you have to go on investor roadshows and convince people to, subscribe to it and that you're ready. So that's a time sink. And that, you know, I, I would caution people to not underestimate that time. And you don't want the distraction from running the business because you don't want to say, okay, we're performing well, we're going to go do our IPO process and it could take nine months. Mm -hmm. And then you distract your whole management team from running the business. And all of a sudden things aren't performing as well. And now that everything I said about reliability, predictability of the business that goes away. And then, so it, it's a, it's just, it's, you have to make sure you're, you're also staffed for these things and, and really can structure the company around ensuring the trains run on time. So mm -hmm. operating the company well, while you're going through a, what's a very time intensive process, especially for the management of the company. So not, not for the faint of heart, for sure. Yeah, but as you mentioned at the beginning, your background professionally with your team, yeah. that helped you tremendously to actually pull that off. Yes. Yeah. So you knew how public companies were running. Yeah, that was that was fundamental, and it allowed me to help coach and advise and make decisions, even on hiring. And I think since then, we've uh, as we filled out the team in the financial area or the legal area, we have uh, you know a very seasoned team that's that's uh, if they haven't done an IPO, they've worked in the public sector quite a bit. So, yeah. and can you also elaborate a bit on why you chose to go public the way that you did with a SPAC? Sure. We very uniquely not following, I think, what the traditional process in going public or, or even in doing a SPAC, we we didn't do a lot of searching or um, run a process where, um, you know, where we would sort of put a book out and have different mm -hmm. SPACs look at it and try to negotiate the highest valuation. We had current investors that actually owned a publicly trading um, acquisition vehicle, a SPAC. And so they approached us as we started to build the business. Hey, let's, why don't we um, go public? We were going to raise our Series C about, about 150 million. And they said, why don't you cut that back to about 100 million and let's provide the other capital you need through an IPO. Um, so that's what got the discussion started. And that's when I think there was a, definitely at the time in the market, there was a, a a lot of attraction and a lot of desire to invest in SPACs. I think that that sentiment has changed. Mm -hmm. um, for ones that that perform or that are guiding in line with, uh, as we are, with what we said to investors before, um, you know, I think that's that's important. Um, and the ones, a lot of the SPACs that, that 
that had difficulty doing that are really suffering. And what did going public change for you personally? Well, there's definitely, I would say, a more intense schedule that you have to balance between the operative side of running the company mm -hmm. versus the investor side. And, and those are important constituents and it's important you get those priorities right. Oh. Um, so I think the, um, you know, the way the way I was running the company before and not being a public company, we, and now as a public company, you, there's more, um, just formal process on certain functions and on formal reporting and timing and just quite frankly on communication, by the way, that's both internally and externally people underestimate the internal communication as a public oh, company, yeah. because, um, you know, as a new company, there's a lot of things that we get targeted for that you need to communicate with employees um, that are just watching the stock. So a lot of them, uh, because there's a newer company, a lot of the employees and, and all of them uniformly own stock in the company. So I wanted it that way. So they watch it. And so, it, so there's a, um, you, you know, a, there's a, a feeling that you're compelled and uh, to really communicate a little more internally as, as people may see movements and things and not understand them. Um, but we always keep the mantra of, you know, keeping people focused on uh, the execution side, ignoring the noise and, and that the stock price takes care of itself, um, essentially, as long as we're executing for customers. So Absolutely. Yeah. And talking about feelings, how did you feel when you actually went public? Were, was there any feeling of accomplishment or a very proud or happy feeling? Yeah, I'd say uh, it was definitely, it, it was a surreal experience, especially on the New York Stock Exchange, where to go through the halls that, um, uh, you know, that, that have the, the golden, you know, plated olive vines and, and the wreaths and the, um, uh, the Corinthian columns that are gold plated there when you're walking through there and just seeing the history and, um, it, it, it's really awe inspiring, very, it's very humbling. Mm -hmm. Uh, when I look at the companies that, uh, for example, when you stand on that platform and ring the bell, which we did on Valentine's day, Oh, wow. on February 14th. So <laughs> it was just such a special day. And then when you, when you're walking up the stairs to that platform, you see all the signatures on the wall, which they have all the companies that have gone public, write their signature on the wall. It's just a, you know, you realize what a big deal it is uh, because there's only a few thousand public companies in, in the world. Um, so it's yeah. a, it's, um, or I, I'd say in the, in the U S and then every, the U.S. is one of the largest markets, so if you multiply that by the countries, and the, there's not a lot of stock exchanges, right? The the, sure. the larger ones, maybe there's, you know, nine or ten total that are really the ones that are most substantial. You figure a few thousand companies. I mean, it's a it's a pretty elite and small group, um, and I think that's, uh, um, you, you know, it is. Uh, you you definitely feel um, a, a, an obligation to go out and 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 you know, make everybody that have invested in you that to um, continue to give them that confidence and mm -hmm. and just deliver for shareholders. But it was a it was just a, a unique experience that I'll never forget. You have your family there. So I brought all my brothers and sisters and um, wow. uh, most all my children were there. And it's just a, to share that moment with them and those that uh, I was close to and those that were close to me. I'll uh, just never forget that event or them. A very special day, very, yeah, day to remember, certainly. Yeah. 
Now, you know, going public, I can imagine that also increases the pressure because suddenly, you know, much more information is publicly available. You have to deliver. There's more pressure, more money involved, more people involved. Is it fun to run a public company? Well, I enjoy it because I have a lot of experience in public companies mm -hmm. and I uh, feel very strongly about how to build a company and how to run uh, also a business also on the, uh, you know, as a public company. So I'd say okay. that for me, there's no change in how you're building teams, uh, I think, and how you're operatively, how I've run businesses before. However, there's, there is a, a very high expectation and, and critical function around process reliability that's a lot different than the, than the private sector. So I, um, I enjoy it because we, and in everything I've done in businesses, everything's always been ethical, compliant. It starts with people. It starts with focusing on customers as well. Uh, and those factors never change. Um, uh, when you're doing new technology, this is the, I think the nuance here is we're not an established company. We're a brand new one. This is our first deployment year. So you're always going to have up and downs and volatility when you're deploying as a new public company. So we didn't have 15 years of uh, history before where we had operating cash flows. This is our first year of revenue. Yeah. So there is uh, therefore more risk in being public in the sense of, um, you know, expectations and meeting expectations and something that you haven't built before yeah. and to doing that on, on a public stage. So I'd say that wasn't a decision taken lightly. Um, at the same time, I, I think investors understand that as a new company, that there's going to be a little more volatility therefore a little more risk and and some people are willing to take that risk and some aren't and and i feel good about having the team that we can manage through that and execute even in the early stages here so i'd say that's what's a, a little unique in being public then is the um you know the fact that this is our first deployment year and our first growth year absolutely and yet you have many plans for the future can you talk a bit more about what we can expect from energy world what your expansion plans are and what you've planned with customers such as NL, DG Fields, and NTPC? Sure. Well, we've publicly announced a lot of things already in some of the largest markets in the world. So uh, Australia and China and with NL Green Power in the U.S. Uh, mm -hmm. in Texas. And we've announced other collaborations like with NTPC in India, which is the largest power provider. It's the public utility there. So it has uh, almost 70 gigawatts now that they're managing and a lot of those gigawatts come from coal so they have to transition that out so they're they were very excited about our solution to use coal ash uh, within our process of the composite block so i would say outside of the three core regions that we that we've talked about starting in uh, you know us china australia mm -hmm. there's other parts of the world that um, will continue to get priority and that people will see announcements from. I mean, India is one of them. You mentioned DG Fuels, so that's in sustainable aviation fuel. They're now starting to announce their first off-taker agreements. So they're another company similar to ours that's building a new waste to biomass energy process and um, working through all the things they're working through in terms of their uh, Department of Energy financing and things, but really focusing on customers and building and already, you know, getting off-taker agreements for their tech. So it's a it's I, I would say people can continue to expect us to announce, um, you know, expansions of our business in particular, I think, with our software and the capability that gives us to um, to do things 
that others can't. There's no other energy storage company right now in the world, um, at least any public ones that are um, that can do both short and long duration technology mm -hmm. with a single energy management system. So wow. we're unique in that regard, and um, people are beginning to see that where we're announcing shorter duration uh, battery integration projects while announcing multi-gigawatt hours of gravity energy storage. So I'd say people can continue to expect more of that. Certainly a lot of work, but also a very exciting future ahead of you. To wrap up this conversation, Rob, we have some rapid fire questions for you. So I either give you different options to choose from or a short question, and you have to answer in one sentence. You're okay. ready? Yes, I am, yes. Corporate executive or entrepreneur? Entrepreneur. Pizza or pasta? <laughs> pasta. How do you commute to work? With an electric vehicle. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> Beer or wine? Wine, absolutely. And twice on Sundays. Okay, perfect. <laughs> what does money mean to you? Nothing. Nothing. The US or Switzerland? Both. In, in which order? <laughs> <laughs> I have to officially say 50-50 for tax purposes, Sure, <laughs> but I, I would say uh, being born in the U.S., I, I tend to consider myself a, an American, but, but also in the sense of um, a, really a global citizen of the world, given America being founded is by multiple different peoples and cultures. Mm -hmm. However, I, I would say I'm more apt to be more European in terms of cultural style, in particular Mediterranean. Uh, I just uh, that that way of life uh, uh, around the culture, the food, around the importance of family and um, and, and tradition and history, uh, for me is really what what I'm about. People don't know this, but I'm a farmer really at my heart. Um, I do gardens every year uh, wow. for vegetables. I plant fruit trees everywhere I go, uh, and I just love getting in the ground. So oh, amazing, yeah. Well, both places are very well suited for that, I guess. Yes. What's more fun, running a private or a public company? Well, it's more fun running a private company uh, just because of the, the degrees of freedom you have in doing that, um, for sure. And the last one, what is your favorite thing about Ticino? I would say to have a combination of the uh, the order and reliability and predictability of Switzerland mm -hmm. combined with the creativity and the culture of the Italians together. And that's, I think, very unique. And that blend tends to be the best uh, for me. Yeah, that sounds like the perfect combination. It's worked so far. Yeah. Rob, thank you so much for coming on the show. All the best, lots of success, and we're super excited to see where you continue with the Energy Wall journey. Great. Thank you, Zilin. It's been a pleasure. It's been nice getting to know you as well, and I appreciate you having me on. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, you can support us by rating our show on Apple Podcasts. This way, we can reach an ever-growing number of aspiring entrepreneurs.